Morning, as, as Kent mentioned earlier, it's so fun to have family around, and especially when you've got little kids in the house, you, you never quite know what's going to happen. I remember listening to a, a seminary professor talking about experience that he had with his small daughter, and he was sitting there watching her one day, and she'd been staring out the window for quite some time, and and in his head, he starts rolling tape, thinking what, what she might be thinking. And, he, and he's thinking to himself, he's like, yes, all along I, I've known I would have a daughter who is a deep philosopher. You know, she's probably sitting there contemplating the nature of the cosmos, looking out the window, thinking, you know, why is there something instead of nothing and, and going on? And he, he's kind of rolling this. And, and then she stops and she turns to look to him and she's like, Daddy, I've got a question. And inside he, to himself again, he's like, shoot, your daddy can answer it, you know. And she turns to him and she says, Daddy, do mosquitoes go pooper? <laughs> so, you know, little children have a way of kind of cutting through the, the sophistication that we tend to look at ourselves with as adults and kind of bringing things right back down to reality. And even sometimes with that, a lot of times they don't even know what they're doing when they, you know, kind of pop our intellectual bubbles and pull us back. So today we're going to look at a situation where, where Jesus in the, is in the middle of teaching. There's, it's a large crowd. There's the religious leaders are there. There's parents with children and his disciples. And Jesus uses the children to kind of ground truth everybody and bring everybody back to reality. So... Stand with me, if you would, and let's read through um, Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to him, called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the children of the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Thank you. You may be seated. Oh. You know, when, the, when I first read this passage, I, you know, it's, it's so hard to shift gears kind of from how we view things today to looking back to how it was said in the original time frame, the original setting. And my first thought in looking through this was, okay, Jesus was there, people were bringing little children to him, the disciples tried to shoo them away, and Jesus rebukes them. Not a big deal, right? I mean, in the grand scheme of things. But in, learning, in looking through and, and doing some more research of what was actually going on and what the context was, there's a lot more to it than what first met the eye to me. The key concept here that we're going to be looking at today is just Jesus' phrase there of the kingdom of God, and specifically, how does a person enter into the kingdom of God? And what, you know, from God's perspective, what does he look at in us, and how does a person gain access to the kingdom of God? And that phrase, the kingdom of God itself, what does it mean? It's used in Scripture to mean 
entering into a relationship with Christ, being able to enter into heaven, and submitting to the lordship of Jesus. So it's kind of, those are different concepts that are kind of encompassed within that phrase. So just looking at the context of what was happening that day, um, there was a large crowd that was there that had gathered to hear Jesus because Jesus at this time in his ministry, his reputation had begun to spread. People were wanting to come to hear him. There were the religious leaders that were there. Some were there to listen. Some were there looking for some reason to accuse him or because there was beginning, they were beginning to sense that there was a difference between what he was teaching and what they were teaching, and they were not happy about it. And his disciples were there. Um, and this is part of a larger, this is partway through his teaching that day. He had just finished talking about a parable in which he talked about a, a, a religious leader that went into the temple to pray. And while this man was there praying, he was praying about how he was thanking God that he was not like other people. And he listed off robbers, thieves, people who did bad things. And then he went on to talk about how his own kind of good spiritual accomplishments made him a spiritual or upright person. And it was, now it was obvious by what Jesus included in the description of this man that even though this man may have been doing some good things, his heart motivation for doing it was not where it was supposed to be. This man was focused on, in that day, keeping the commandments of God, or, or what was generally referred to as keeping the law, uh, in order to be accepted to God. And he was, as he stood there praying, he was spilling out about what a good job he was doing. I mean, he had this, you know, you know, kind of when you look up spiritual man in the dictionary, there was his picture. So it was, it was obvious from the description that Jesus gave that this man's approach to that was wrong. But in this, in this next interaction, in this next scene that we see take place, Jesus is going to develop that further and make it even more plain to people that this, this idea of us being accepted by God based on what we do does not work, and, and we'll develop that more as we get into it. So stepping into this scene, Jesus, again, as we said, Jesus had just finished this, this other parable, and now what seems to be happening is, is there was, Jesus had taught, and probably there was a little bit of a gap in the action, and there were some parents there with young children, and they started to come up to Jesus and ask Jesus to bless them. And it said there was the, um, it says they were bringing even babies to him. So, you know, it was babies. It's from Jesus' response when um, Jesus says to the disciples, do not hinder the children. He uses a different word that, that uses, includes babies all the way up into probably young, close to, uh, teen children. So it seems as though in the crowd, well, we, the parents are mentioned, there may have been a few other young children that are just approaching Jesus on, on their own. And it was a common practice in that day for parents to bring their children to a rabbi to ask 
the rabbi to bless them. I mean, the parents in that day thought, thought of things in, in some ways very similar to what we do. We want our children to come to know God. We want our children to get a good start early in life. So this is part of what's going on. So as this is happening, Jesus is distracted for a moment. He's interacting with these parents and with these children. And kind of off on the periphery, the disciples see this, and they kind of start running interference. Or it's a little bit even more harsh than that. They, they're starting to intercept the parents. And not only are they telling them to back off, to go away, but it says they begin to rebuke them, which is a polite way of saying they begin to chew these parents out for even the audacity of bringing their kids up to see Jesus. And Jesus' response is he tells them, stop, let the children come to me. And it's interesting here, the, one of the reasons I see that this passage had a, this situation had a big effect on the disciples is that out of the four Gospels, three of them include this situation and what happens next. And the, the way that it's in, recorded in, in the book of Mark gives us a little bit more detail on Jesus' response. It says, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Okay, now, to be honest, I had to look up indignant. I knew it meant mad to some degree. But... Um, I remember back to a, a time at work uh, when I had screwed up on a project and I had to ask a person above me. The, these projects I worked on were supposed to be approved in advance, everything ironed out, and then before anything was done. Well, through a series of events and the advice of a person that I shouldn't have listened to, I. I started a project, we got halfway through and we had to change it, and then I had to go to this person that was above both of us and ask him to approve this project after it was halfway built and we had to make changes. Um, I had a pretty good relationship with this guy and he was a man of character, but I can still remember that day because when I asked him, would you do this, his face turned red and he began you know, I could see he was trying hard to be under control, and he wasn't a person to just, you know, hurl out four-letter words at me, but he began to shake, and he just said, I do not like doing this. You know, that, that shake, that quiver, that is what the word indignant means. So Jesus was mad enough that he was working to keep himself under control when he addressed the disciples, he, but he was, it came out, in a visible strain when he said, stop. So the question is then, why was Jesus so mad at his disciples over telling these people to back off? I mean, if, you know, in some ways it seems like they were just trying to help him continue on with the message. And these parents were interrupting Jesus. I mean, Jesus was the rabbi that had come in to teach, to speak to the crowd. But I, I, as I begin to try to dig into that a little bit more, I, I borrowed some resources from John MacArthur and looking and, and he was talking about that in, that in that culture, 
and the teaching of that day that this, this idea that, that you had to work to earn God's favor, to work to earn God's acceptance, this, this was all that these people had been taught up to this point. And that it was probably also so deeply ingrained in the disciples that when they saw this happening, that, that Jesus' important teaching, and it was important teaching, was being interrupted for, for little babies, they got it wrong. Because, you know, think about it for a minute. If you're, if you're a little child, how much do you understand about the law? I mean, you can't even speak at this point. And, and the, the idea that in order to be accepted by God, we had, you had to learn the law, you had to put it into practice, and you kind of had to begin to build up kind of a spiritual credit in your account to get God's favor. So when the disciples looked at the babies, you know, the, the babies can't even understand what's being said. The little children, you know, they can maybe understand what's being said, but they haven't had a chance to begin to work for God, to begin to earn their salvation, so to speak, and what I, what I saw from the references was that it was this idea that made Jesus very mad, that his, his disciples had not yet got it. And number two, based on that misunderstanding that they had, they were now beginning to hinder other people, namely the children, from being able to come to Jesus and to be able to establish that relationship. Sorry, I'm taking, got ahead of my notes and I got to get myself caught back up. Um, Jesus stopped people and he said that he drew the parallel between the little children and, and us coming into the kingdom. Because when you, when you think about it, you know, I remember the experience of bringing our, our children home and, and they're so small that they fit in my two hands and I could hold them. And I mean, you're almost afraid to pick them up when they're at that age because they're so fragile. And even, you know, from there into, you know, it takes a number of years before children can be do, really begin to do anything on their own. And that child's entire existence at that point is really dependent upon their trust in the goodwill of their parents, you know? And, and that's as God designed it to be. And for most of us, that was our experience. There are some of us where we had parents that were, did not live up to that. But, but if we're here today, some adult intervened on our behalf and provided for us what we need. You know, the babies, when something goes wrong, they can't even tell us what's wrong. You know, at first, I mean, they start to cry and it's like, okay, how long ago did we feed you? You check the other end. Um, you know, if that's dry, you start patting, maybe it's gas. You know, but they're, they're just totally dependent. And that's the issue here that, that Jesus is trying to bring out, 
that instead of this idea of us being able to earn our acceptance, to be able to do enough good things that God will be happy with us and let us into his kingdom, Jesus has said, no, you're to be like a little child. You're to be humble, admit your need, and, and trust in me. And we're going to develop that a little bit more, just what exactly that looks like here. Galatians 3, 10 and 11 give us a little bit more insight into that. Looking at verse 10, it says, that, and this means that anyone who tries to live by his own effort, independent of God's help, is doomed to failure. Scripture backs this up and says, utterly cursed is every person who fails to carry out every detail written in the book of the law. Now, the law was given for, to show us what is right, to show us what expect, God expects. The law is good, after all, in that it gives us a glimpse into God's perfect moral character. But there's a huge problem here in that we can't live up to it. In a way, it seems as though God has almost set us up to fail because he gives us this perfect standard and he says, this is what I expect, this is what's needed. And yet, when I look at what I'm able to do, <laughs> I mean, they're not even close. You know, so it looks almost as though God has set us up. In a way, he has, but it's a setup with a purpose. It's not a setup for condemnation. It's not something that God is going to set up on purpose to hold over us and condemn us with. As Jesus said, he came into the world to save us, not to condemn us. But how do we enter into that? How do, as Jesus said, how do we, like little, little children, enter into the kingdom of God? When my kids were little, sometimes as they were, as they were growing and taking on something, they would sometimes announce to me a project that they were going to go and do this. And, and sometimes even when they first told me, I was like, hmm, I wonder how this is going to go, because what they were attempting to do was above what they were developmentally able to do. And it's like, you know, but sometimes I had the wisdom to just stand back and let them dive into it without commenting on it until things begin to go south. And then I could step in and say, you know, could I help you with this? And, and one of the purposes, you know, it's, it's so interesting, so many things that God puts in scripture or he lays out, there's like more than one purpose, more than one aspect to it. And the idea of God's law of his, of his telling us this is how you need to live, not only does it tell us how we need to live, but it's also set up in a way to help us see that we can't do it. It's, it's set up in a way to, that when, we, when we're honest about it, when we think about it, we see, okay, this is what's expected, and this is where my life is at. It's meant to get us to say, to think about, What's going wrong? Let's pick out 
for example, let's just pick out one commandment out of the 10. Um, Jesus summarized the second commandment as to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, and, and I'm in favor of that. I try to do that. I want to do that. But you know what? My closest neighbor is my lovely wife. And, you know, it's hard because, I mean, we both speak English, but sometimes it just doesn't seem, you know. But, I mean, there, there's some things that work against it. I mean, she grew up in a family that's, that's kind of a little bit much more loud than the family I grew up into. And if you got on their nerves, they weren't afraid to tell you and in your face. And it was funny because when my wife first visited my family, she says, I think that's the first time I've ever heard forks chink against a plate because she's used to the lot. So needless to say, you know, we have many things in common. There's many things that we enjoy doing together. But once in a while, when we communicate, it doesn't really connect. And, and sometimes, you know, it, my feelings get hurt. And if, you know, if I'm seeking to honor God in the moment, and I take it to Him, and I ask, how do I deal with this? Or are there questions I need to ask my wife? Well, I'll be honest, there's many times when I don't seek to honor God in that moment, and I, you know, my feelings get hurt, and she might be telling me something that I need to pay attention to that I haven't paid enough attention to. And instead of honoring God inside, I'm like, oh yeah? So, I'm sure none of you have had that problem, but, but the, the verse before, whoever fails to fulfill the law in, you know, in every detail, I mean, I'm not even close some days. I'm not even hitting the rough outline some days. So let's look at Galatians 3.11. And this develops a little bit more. It says, the obvious impossibility of carrying out such a moral program that is living up to God's expectation in the law should make it plain that no one can sustain a relationship with God that way. You know, we are guilty of breaking his commandments. In Isaiah 59.2 says there's a, there's a consequence to this, it says, your iniquities have separated you from, from your God. When we sin, when we fall short of his commandments, that separates us from God. And we can't undo that separation on our own. In fact, God never meant for us to be able to. His plan in sending Jesus for, was for Jesus to live up to the demands of the law for him to be the one who fulfilled every single detail and to do that in our place. He was the one who would measure up to what God expected. And he now offers that accomplishment to us for our benefit. Let's look at the next part of Galatians 3.11. It says, the person who lives in right relationship with God does it by embracing what God arranges for him, doing things for God, trying to live up to the law, is the opposite 
of entering into what God does for you. Habakkuk had it right. The person who believes God is set right by God, and that's real life. So how do we embrace what God has arranged for us? It's interesting how the verse says that doing things for God is the opposite of entering into what God does for you. And in in my early, kind of early high school years, 10th, 11th grade, I, I, I wrestled with this whole idea of believing in God, trying to get an You know, I I knew that God was there. But this idea of what what God has arranged for us, what God has done for us, um, you know, with Christ's death on the cross, I, I knew that that meant that I had to open my life to Christ and allow him to come in. I knew that I had to submit myself to him. And I knew that God wanted a total relationship with me. But I wasn't sure I was ready for that. I was afraid. I didn't know what that would all entail. Um, I kind of wanted God about at arm's length. There close enough that if I got in trouble or something really bad happened, he was there and I could pull him in. But at the same time, as far as me submitting to him, I was afraid of that. I didn't know what that would entail. I didn't know what God would ask. And because of that fear, you know, I figured, okay, this is what God wants. I'm not sure I'm really willing to go there, but, you know, maybe if I kind of start to work in that direction. And and I don't know, is is this what got the teaching that, that we could be justified by the law? Is that, you know, are we subject to falling into that same trap today of, of, I mean, I know that I am at times where I look at what God wants and I'm afraid of going there. I'm afraid to trust him. And so what I try to do is, you know, in high school, I tried to live as a nice young man. I tried to do many good things. I tried to do what was right. But there was a thing that kept happening to me and that I kept getting tripped up. Um, I've got two sisters. Uh, Sharon is the youngest sister. She's about eight years younger than me. And we have this thing in common where we, just, we love to banter. And the more outrageous an insult we could throw at each other, the better. And, and we can do this for a long time, and both of us enjoy it. Then I've got, uh, there's a sister in between, her, in between us. Her name is Beth. And Beth, is, Beth has got a good sense of humor. She's a bright person. About her only real fault is that she studied English in college, which I can never understand. But, um, but she's a soft-spoken, um, you know, just soft-hearted type of person. And, you know, being a, a, an older brother, I don't know, maybe it just comes with the territory, I always seem to like to pick on Beth because sometimes she just would do things that were just, you know, it was too hard not to, you know, pick on her. But I could tell at times that this was hurting her, that it, that it really wasn't funny. And I also know that there was a couple times when my parents saw what was going on and kind of intervened and said, hey, you, you got to knock this off. And, and I really wanted to, but I just kept finding myself 
falling back in that rut. And that was one of the things that God used to really get a hold of me and say, Eric, you know, you need to deal with this. This, what you're doing is not right, and you need me. You know, I didn't know what, at the time, but I was wrestling through what, what Galatians 3.11 says, where doing things for God is really the opposite of entering into what God does for you. And now, how, how is that an opposite? I mean, if I'm trying to move in God's direction, but it comes down to the, the element of trust. Where am I putting my trust? Am I putting my trust into what Jesus has already done for me on the cross? What he, the, the penalty for my sin that he paid, that he's just offering to me, is saying it's already done, just take it? The opposite is when I choose to say, no, I'm not willing to do that. I'm going to try and make myself acceptable to God. You know, I mean, I didn't think of it at the time, but just think about, I mean, how arrogant. The, the, the creator of the universe, who's done it all, who's paid the penalty, who wants to be in a relationship with us, and he, and he offers it, just take it, accept it, trust me, and I'll give it to you, and me saying, no, no thank you, I'll do it myself, you know? And just seeing, God allowed me to run for a while to be able to see that I couldn't do it, that each time I tried to go down that road, I messed up. So what is this childlike response that Jesus was referring to? How, what does that look like in real life? Um, I remember when our boys were little, we would, I don't know where they came from, I hope I wasn't the one that bought these, but we would get these little, these little wind-up cars that had this little white knob that came off the side. And the things were, you know, if you wound it just right, not too tight, and you held it just right and set it on the floor, it would, you know, take off and scoot out 10, 12 feet. But the things were so cheap and, and poorly designed that you were lucky if you made it through the night and maybe a day or two beyond, if you were lucky. I could see a head nodding somebody else. But they were so poorly designed, they were just not built to last. And, you know, what inv invariably happens is your little kid, you know, winds it too tight or steps on it or something, and then they come up to you and it's, fix this. And it's like, oh, you have no idea what you're asking, you know. Um, but in the same way, our childlike response to God, when we really take a hard look at ourselves, the only right response is to come to Jesus with yourself and just say, fix this, because I can't. You know, we turn to God in faith, trusting him for what he, to pay for our penalty of our sin, to, for our falling short of us not living up to the law, but we're trusting in Christ when he lived up to the law for us in our place so that we didn't have to. I mean, think about what it would be like if we really did have to look up, live up to the law. How could we ever know 
that we were in a proper relationship with God. And it, and it puts God in that place of, you know, sitting there with notepad and pen looking over and, you know, you're not quite there, you haven't done this. And Elisa talked about, you know, growing up in a, in a religious tradition that, that to some degree taught this, that you had to earn your way to God. And the opposite of what Jesus is saying is, I will provide this, trust me. So how do we apply this? Number one is just seeing our need for forgiveness, seeing that we fall short, and all of us do, and then coming to God and just accepting what he did for us, just like, like little children are totally dependent on their parents, we are totally dependent on what Jesus did for us. Without him intervening, without him doing it for us, we could have never measured up. And just uh, to, to boil this down, just a, a simple way of expressing this, if, if this morning you're hearing this and you're, and you're seeing this is where I'm at, I need this. A simple way of expressing that is just through prayer. Just saying, Lord Jesus, I confess that I've sinned against you. Please come into my life and forgive me. Take control of my life and show me how to live for you. And there, there are others of you, maybe, maybe you're hearing this and, you, and you're, you know, you're where I was in high school. You're thinking through, is, is God real? How do I know? Um, one book that I've read that I really like and I recommend to people that are sorting through that is a book by Lee Strobel called A Case for Christ. Um, background on Lee Strobel, he was a legal editor for the Chicago Tribune and he was a guy that didn't believe in God. He just, for whatever reason, he just didn't buy it. But then his wife came to know Christ and now he's nervous because it's like, okay, what has she gotten herself into? Is this a cult? Is this for real? How do I know? And Lee took his investigative journalist skills and began to investigate the story that's in the Bible, the, the account that's in the Bible of who Jesus was to try and figure out for himself, is this legitimate? Is this for real? Do I need to get my wife out of this? And as a result of his searching, as a result of his looking through that, he became convinced that Jesus actually was who he claimed to be, that the, the historical evidence is there. It's, it's a good read if you're interested in that. Um, there's also a movie for those that don't like to read. And for those of us that, are, that have accepted Christ, how do we put this into place Today, I mean, we've already accepted, we've already come to Christ and said, forgive me, um, take control of my life. You know, there's a, once we've come to Christ, our walk after that is still by faith. Our need for Christ doesn't change. You know, when we sit and we, we look in God's word and we read, and, and I don't know about you, but it doesn't take me very long to read something where I see that, okay, this is what God is wanting. Here's where I'm at. 
And it's that same temptation is at play there, isn't it? Where we see God wants us to be obedient, not out of a sense of, of trying to earn his approval, but rather of gratitude for what he's done for us and, and walking with that relationship. Um, you know, like, for example, between Elise and I, you know, I, I try to help out around the house, maybe not as much as I should, Elise, but, um, but taking out the trash, you know, caring for the dogs, doing different things, not for the sense of earning my wife's love because she loves me very much, but out of a sense of just because I love her, that I want to do things that keep that relationship where it needs to be, to keeping that relationship one of love and, and respect and, and honor. And as we love the Lord, as we walk with him, you know, when we read something, are we, are we tempted to say, okay, God, this is what you want. I'm over here. Maybe if I go here, is this close enough, God? Because maybe what God is asking to me to do is scary. Maybe it might be embarrassing. But do we, do we place our day-to-day -day trust as a little child? You know, like um, my son Josh has a, has a, or a little boy is about a year and a half. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. To, when you put little Zach in the car, he's not asking, where are we going? How long is it going to take? I don't know if I want to go. No, little Zach just gets in his car seat and, you know, may not enjoy the whole ride, but, but he's there. And it's like, do we do that with Christ? Do we allow Christ to direct us, to lead us? And are we like little children following him? So let me close this with just a brief prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for, do, for dying in our place and for leading us like little children to walk with you. Thank you, Father, for just for your love, for your grace, and for your mercy on us. In Jesus' name, amen.